0: This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week we're visiting the ancestral lands of the Apache, Comanche, Pueblo, Navajo, Ute, and Zuni peoples of New Mexico.
1: the glaciers of Alaska, to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. And when you hear the call, you know so well, sisters began.
0: Hey, 50 Feminist States fam. Welcome back to season five of the podcast and thank you so much for tuning in today. I am so excited on this very special Friday to be bringing you two very special episodes from New Mexico. I spoke to two feminist artists who have so much to tell us about their art practice, their feminist practice, how the two come together, how teaching impacts their work, and more. I really can't say enough how amazing both of these episodes are and how grateful I was to learn from these wonderful women. Their names are Sarah Stoller and Rosemary Mesa and I can't wait for you to hear what they have to share with us. Before we get into the episode, quick friendly reminder that if you want more 50 Feminist States in your life, you can follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. That's F-I-F-T-Y Feminist States. And subscribe to our newsletter, at 50feministstates.com slash newsletter. I'd love to be in your inboxes and your Instagram feeds sharing more amazing quotes and images from each episode. We've got a very cool new brand going on thanks to Chelsea Warren, and you can see it there on Instagram and in our newsletter. Also, Big thanks to everyone who has already pledged to make a $5 monthly donation to the podcast on our Glow FM page. We are almost halfway to my goal. So if you can be one of those people who can pledge just $5 a month to support this ongoing work please head to glow.fm slash 50 states. I feel like my introductions to these episodes have been getting long, so I am going to dive right in this week. In this episode, you're going to hear from Rosemary Mezadez-Plasse, Place, is an amazing visual and performance artist living in Farmington, New Mexico. I actually met Rosemary at a conference in Barcelona many, many years ago. And thanks to the magic of the internet, we've been able to keep in touch over time. She was already an accomplished artist when we met, but it has been such a joy to see her practice grow, particularly to see her return to performance and performing poetry in her art. And I am so excited for you to hear everything that she has to say in this episode. She has some really great reading recommendations that you're going to want to stick around to to hear. And you definitely want to be following her on Instagram, where you get to see updates about her work and images of the beautiful land around where she lives. Let's dive right in together. Here's Rosemary.
1: So I'm a visual artist and spoken word performer and writer, and I'm based in Farmington, New Mexico. As far as my visual art, I focus on hand-sewn human hair drawings, watercolors, and on-site wall drawing installations. The content of my work is feminist-based, and it deals with socio-political issues that disproportionately impact women. Some of the past issues that I've dealt with are guns, the image of guns juxtaposed with women in film and TV to sell the idea of sex and violence and also gender-based issues. So that's a little bit about the artwork and the content of it. My spoken word performances are also about gender issues and feminism and they pretty much follow along with the artwork. They kind of work together And in the spoken word performances, I write my poetry, I rehearse it, and figure out how I'm going to present it, and I use props, and I also make my costumes.
0: That's a wonderful introduction, and there's so many pieces of the content of your work that I want to ask about, but I wanted to start a little bit farther back and maybe just ask if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up when you started making art, and how you ended up in New Mexico. I know that's a lifelong story, but maybe if you could share a few <laughs> highlights of, of that journey.
1: So I have an uncle on my mother's side, who was an artist. And he lived in Del Rio, Texas, which is on the border. On the other side is Ciudad Acuna on the Mexico side. And I spent every summer and almost every Christmas vacation going to Del Rio, Texas. And I would go and visit my uncle's house, Ephraim, and I loved looking at his painting easel and looking at the palette of colors and the oil paint and the brushes and his materials. And I liked, you know, the smell of the art studio, but I was always very intrigued by it. And I got into art in high school quite a bit. That's kind of when I really started taking it seriously. Because I know, you know, like every kid, I did drawings when I was younger. But in high school, I had a teacher named Vicki Schamberg. And she really encouraged me to learn more about art and artists, more about the history of art. And she encouraged me to be more experimental with media. I had a tendency to do pencil drawings and she was pushing me to try different types of materials. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And from having her as my high school instructor, I decided when I went to university of North Texas for my undergrad, that I was going to major in graphic design. And I chose that avenue because I thought, well, I could get a job, Mm -hmm. but I was only in the classes for like a semester. And I changed my major to painting and drawing, because that's really where I wanted to be was really in fine art. And I had to convince my mom it was a good idea. And I convinced her by telling her, well, you know, after I get my bachelor's degree in painting and drawing, I'm going to go get my master's and then I'll be able to teach. My mom was like, oh, well, you're going to be a college teacher. And I said, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's what made my mom and dad okay with that decision to go into um, fine art as a career. Mm -hmm. I taught for 16 years at El Centro College in downtown Dallas. It is the oldest and the first community college in Dallas. It dates back to 1966. And I built the program up. When I got there, it was kind of a dying program and I built it up over the 16 years I was there. My husband retired in 2015 from his job with the Dallas County Community College District, and he failed retirement. He couldn't figure out what to do. (laughs) So he started getting offers from colleagues or colleges who were in trouble. And so he decided he had a friend who was here in Farmington, New Mexico, and She said, you know, San Juan College could really use your talents. And so we came and visited Farmington, New Mexico, and we both liked it. We both decided that we could see ourselves living here. The landscape and the environment is very attractive. It's so different from an urban setting, which is what I had been used to. It's the smallest place I've ever lived. I lived in Baltimore and also in New York City. Mm So we moved to Farmington in 2016. And I stopped teaching and became a full-time artist and spoken word performer and writer and decided to focus on those items and not teach.
0: What's that transition been like for you from teaching to being a full-time artist?
1: Wow. (laughs) You know, it's amazing. I used to like push myself to get a lot done in the summer when I wasn't teaching or get a lot done during the winter break. And now it's a luxury, really, because I can sit and go back and read a book that I've wanted to read that I think is going to inform my work. I can kind of slow down and research a little bit more, do more preliminary sketches. Mm. I don't feel like I've got to create the work in a big hurry because school's about to start. Mm -hmm. It's given me so much more time to kind of ponder my ideas and think about the different directions I want to go with my artwork. Mm -hmm. It's also given me the time to write more and perform more. Mm -hmm. I kind of stopped performing spoken word because I felt like I didn't have the time I could only be a visual artist or I could be a poet, but I couldn't do both. Mm. And now I have the time. I mean, I have the time to make a costume myself. I have the time to rehearse my poetry. I have the time to go out there and get performance dates to ask people, you know, are you looking for some sort of programming for an exhibition or for your conference? This is what I do. So I have time to go out there and and make connections. And before I felt like I was always in a rush, you know, and now I've been able to kind of slow it down. And I think I've been, you know, productive, more productive.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you've really just gotten so much time to be in process back, which is critical for an artist, I think.
1: It is. You know, sometimes if you, are always working in a rush, then every piece feels like, well, I have to show this piece, even if I don't like it, because otherwise I won't have enough work for the show. Mm -hmm. And now it's like I can do a bunch of work and then I can pick and choose, which I think are my strongest pieces to put into a show. And I don't have to put everything in because I can decide what I want to put in and I have others, you know, so... That's really, to me, important to not have to show everything if I'm not comfortable with it or if I don't think it's my best work. Yeah. I'm just going to take the
0: stakes off of every piece needing to be show ready, make space for things to evolve, make space for you to play. That's all wonderful. I wasn't expecting us to talk about that, but I'm
1: really loving hearing about it, I'm finding. (laughs) Okay. Well, great. (laughs) I mean, I have like a stack of, I call it my oops stack. And it's artworks that didn't really work out. And Mm -hmm. so it's paintings or drawings or experiments. And, you know, I like having them. I like going back and looking at them because they're all part of my learning process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's like, I'm not teaching, but now I'm spending a lot of time learning. You know, I'm in my studio learning. Yeah. Like
0: not being a full-time teacher allows you to be a learner again. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Before we talk more about some of your art pieces, which I definitely want to dive into, I wanted to ask you about something I was reading in your bio on your website about kind of what led you to a feminist ideology. And you mentioned that you had an uncle who was an artist, but I was reading online about your eight aunts whose stories made you into a feminist. Would you be willing to share about who they are and what they've meant to you or how they've impacted your feminism?
1: Yes, absolutely. So my mom came from a family of 11 and they were born in Mexico and then eventually came to the U S and became citizens. And it was eight girls and three boys. And, um, I grew up going to Del Rio, Texas all the time in the summer, sometimes at Christmas. And so I saw a lot of my relatives. My mom's sisters all had very different stories. And, and actually, I feel like as I've gotten older, my mom has gotten a little bit more open about telling their stories and sometimes parts of their stories that I didn't hear as a child. So I have, I have aunts whose husbands left them to raise their kids on their own i have aunts who experienced domestic violence or incidents of violence and hearing their stories and watching them and they all have this amazing tenacity for resilience and surviving and trying to raise their children in such a way that if they don't have a father there They don't feel the loss of that father figure so much. Some of the stories are very sad. Back in, I guess, 2004, I was going through a divorce and breaking up with my husband. I had a talk with my mom, and she wasn't happy that I was going to get divorced. And she said, you know, people in our family don't get divorced your aunts, you know, experienced this and this and this, but they never left their husband. They always stayed married. And I I thought, well, maybe they should have. Maybe they should have gotten out of the marriage. You know, there's something to be said for Catholicism and, you know, obeying your vows of marriage, but there's also something to be said for Mm self-preservation and making sure that you survive the marriage, that you live to be, you know, an old lady. So I guess it was seeing them work so hard, you know, seeing them make tortillas from scratch in the morning, every morning, to see them sewing clothes for their kids. The work that they did as a mother and a father, because they had to play both roles, was just amazing. I guess the strength that they showed me made me think about the idea of gender and ideas of which sex is the weaker sex. And to me, the women that I had in my life were the women that were so strong and memorable to me. The idea, while I didn't realize it was there, when I went to UNT... I took a class called American Women in U.S. History. And I thought, well, this is weird. Like you have history classes, but this class is just going to be about women in U.S. history. Obviously, they were there. It was really a great class. It really opened up my eyes. And it just took that little nugget that had been there and just this idea of feminism and women and society and in the world And the roles that they have, that just started to grow and get bigger in my mind and in my thoughts. But I think it all started
0: with my immediate family. Thank you for sharing. I just imagine that so many women listening will either feel similarly or can imagine women in their own families who they see as like beacons of strength. And they can make those connections between those women's experiences, their own experiences and the kind of narratives around gender that you're talking about. And it's it's so interesting to hear too, that kind of, it was, it was in a class where you really started to make those connections between those stories and, and feminism more, more broadly. That's very cool too. I would love to talk about some of your work. Could you share for listeners a little bit about the work that you do with hair I'll link to your website, but maybe you can kind of describe
1: what it is and your process and then what it means to you. Sure, I can do that. I started doing large scale wall drawings in 1998. And these were drawings directly on the wall with Conte. And a friend of mine saw one of my wall drawings. She said, wow, you know, from afar, Rosemary, it looks like hair. It looks like these wispy hairs crawling across the wall. And I thought, wow, that's that's an interesting idea, hair. And I, you know, thought about it. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if I could do something with with my hair. So I started doing some experiments, and the very first drawings I did, I tried gluing the hair on paper, and it just looked clumsy and clunky. And I thought, uh, and I thought maybe I could sew it. And I'm not a sewer per se. My mom sewed clothes for me. I used to sew little outfits for my Barbie dolls, but they were really badly sewn. So it was not my forte. So I, I would have a drawing that was mainly graphite. And then in one little section, I would sew a little bit of hair. And I tried to figure out what I wanted the hair to look like. And I decided I would like it to look like the lines that you make in drawing hatching, cross-hatching, stippling, and extended scribble. So I started focusing on translating drawing techniques into sewing human hair. And I would collect my hair every morning, and I'd collect it just by running my fingers through my hair. My hair just falls out, and I would put it into a piece of tissue and put it on the vanity. And so by the end of the week, there would all be these balled up pieces of tissue with my hair in it. And then I would take it into the studio and start working with it. And part of the process that I like is laying out the hair. So I'd lay it out according to length. So really long pieces of hair that I could sew for a while, really short pieces of hair, and then kind of a medium length. And I would lay them out in that way before I would start working. Over the years, I've dyed my hair a dark brown, a reddish brown, a black, a violet-type brown. So different values. And that enabled me to get different values within my artwork. So I use very small embroidery needles. And I'm actually sewing the hair, threading the needles, sewing the hair, into canvas, mylar, vellum, different types of art papers, and creating images with the hair. A few years ago, I started to go gray, which is, you know, something that most of the time women don't want to go gray. It's an indication of age, but I decided to embrace the gray. So now I've collected my hair, so I have a top of hair, and it's brown, but there's gray strands in it. And so now I've started creating hand-sewn human hair drawings, but with my gray hair. And right now, there's not a lot of them out there. There's about four. So it's kind of a relatively new process to use the gray hair. And overall, you know, for some people, it might be considered kind of a tedious process. For me, it's meditative. Yeah. I enjoy categorizing the hair into different lengths I like sliding my fingers along the hair my hair is really coarse and I like sliding it along figuring out the length putting it into different piles and now I'm going into those tubs of brown hair and I'm sitting there and pulling out my gray hairs and then when I have enough of the gray hairs then I can start working on a gray hair drawing It also makes me look at it differently. I would kind of gotten to a point where I developed more skill with my sewing and more skill with creating the value with the hair. And now I've like thrown myself for a loop because now I've added the difficulty of doing gray hair on a black twill fabric. And so now I have to sit and figure out, well, how do I want the gray to react? Do I want it to be the value of the darks or do I want it to be the lights or am I going to do a combination? So I've created a new problem for myself, <laughs> which is good. I like having something new because it keeps me from getting bored. I used to tell my students that I gave them their assignments and they had to do this. And I said, but in my studio, I give myself my own assignments and my own problems that I have to figure out. And the gray hair was like my own assignment to figure out.
0: Yeah, and I love too how it's like an assignment kind of posed by your body, right? So because your medium is directly connected to your body, as your body changes, the work will change. I feel like that's true for many, if not most artists, but I love how visible it is in this because of the changes in hair colors.
1: You know, the interesting thing about the hair is it has this dichotomy to it in terms of context and how people react to it you know if you see hair in your soup at a restaurant you're disgusted and you send the soup back but if you're out somewhere and you look across and you see a woman with like long luxurious hair you know it's attractive and so depending on the context of when you see the hair, it can repulse you or attract you. I had a show at the Durango Art Center a couple years ago and I had one of my hair drawings up and there were two ladies that were looking at the drawing and one lady got her face kind of up close to the surface and she started blowing onto my drawing. So she would put her lips together and was just blowing air on the drawing. And I was watching, and I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. And she was trying to explain to her friend that it's not pencil or pen, that it's actually hair. And she was like, look, when I blow on it, it moves. It's really hair. It's alive. And one of the things that's changed in the hair drawings is now I – Cut the strands off longer so that the strands of hair in the drawing come off the surface and towards the viewer, and so that you can blow on it now and the hair moves. So there's kind of this energy and sense of being alive in the material itself, which I like. I like the fact that I'm essentially staying alive Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I'm in all of these works and wherever they go, you know, part of me has gone with them. So I'm there.
0: Oh, that's so cool. So it seems like your spoken word pieces are also a way of being embodied in your work. Of course, they don't travel without you, I guess, except through video perhaps, but can you talk a little bit about some of the spoken word performances that you've done and maybe if that practice developed alongside I know you talked a little bit before about how you felt you had to be a poet or a visual artist, but I'd love to just hear more about how it's come back into your practice and and what spoken word performances you might have done recently, at least before everything got canceled for spring. (laughs) I know.
1: (laughs) Right. And that's exactly it. They were canceled. (laughs) So the spoken word performances, I've always been a writer. I would draw on my sketchbook, obviously, but then I would also I'd write poetry or just write a few lines or I'd read an article and cut the article out and I'd tape it into my sketchbook. And then I'd write something about what I thought about the article. So I liked the idea of writing the poetry. I also like writing academic papers as well, but the poetry would kind of exist in tandem with the artwork. So, I did a series that was about anger as a tool for change for women. And so then a poem that I wrote recently, Mm -hmm. which is, we are the women of these United States, is about anger as a tool for change. So they really coexist together. Mm -hmm. And then I was trying to create costumes that I thought went with the poetry or went with certain blocks of poetry. And so usually when I perform, I come out in a costume and I do two or three poems in that costume. And then I change directly in front of the audience into a different costume and then do two or three more poems. And so usually it's that I have another costume underneath The one that I initially came out in. Mm -hmm. So I created a bra skirt. So it's a skirt made from my bras and they dangle down almost like fringe. Mm -hmm. I did a series of visual artworks based on gender based burdens, poverty, violence. And so I created a hat, which I call my burden hat. I thought we all carry our own burdens with us. So if you're a woman, you might have the burden of maybe you were in a domestic violence relationship or situation, and that's your burden from the past, that even as you move forward, that burden stays with you. Those memories stay with you. So I wanted to create a hat that was reflective of my own burdens, and they're not literal. They're like shapes and forms and colors and and textures and patterns that are all kind of put together in this kind of bulbous sculptural format. Mm -hmm. And it sat on my head and it was kind of like an elaborate headdress, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed this kind of process of creating a costume that went with the poem. And when I perform, I do a lot of rehearsal. So I try to figure out how to say certain lines and I sometimes add in a prop if I think it's appropriate. This past semester, I registered for an acting one class at San Juan College. And that was in order for me to get better at performing. And so I thought, well, the acting class will give me different ideas that I can incorporate into my performances. So I did have a performance scheduled for Austin for April the 10th. And then the following weekend, which I think was April 17th, 18th, I was supposed to perform for a gender studies conference in Madison, Wisconsin. So both of those got canceled. Mm -hmm. So I haven't had the chance yet to take what I've learned in my acting class and utilize it within my spoken word performances. I'm looking forward to doing that, but I have not had a chance to do it yet.
0: Yeah. I can't wait to see what that yields. I'm sure it'll be really exciting for you
1: and for the people who get to witness it. So I performed at Freeform Gallery in Santa Fe. Yeah. There's Durango Art Center in Durango, Colorado. I was invited by Word Space, which is a literary organization in Dallas, to come in and perform at a private home. And it was an art collector and also board member of Word Space who opened up his home. And I did a performance there, which was for kind of a smaller audience. And had the Madison, Wisconsin show, if it had gone on... I was going to be the opening act for a drag show. Oh, cool. I was really pumped up about doing that. I thought, wow, this is going to be really interesting, but didn't happen. Yeah.
0: I'm sure there will be another
1: time. It has to happen again. It'll it'll happen one day. There will be. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I do want to mention this because it was a challenge. Mm -hmm. I had a show at Amos Eno Gallery in Brooklyn in 2019. And the show was called Jane Anger. So it's that series of anger as a tool for change. So I decided that every 15 minutes, I was going to perform a poem in the gallery space. And so to me, the poetry would be kind of like these short bursts, intervals of anger that happened within the space. It was really quite a challenge because I would be engaged in talking to a gallery patron And I'd look at my watch, I'd go, excuse me, I have to go and perform a poem. I'll be right back. And I'd go into my poetry mode and present a poem. And then I'd go back to talking to people. And then 15 minutes later, I would do it again. So every 15 minutes throughout the evening, I did a poem. How did that feel for you? And how did it feel in the space? For me, it was challenging to go from being the artist and talking about my art to being the performer and doing the performance. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I did it because it was something different. It was challenging. I don't know if I would do it again. I kind of like the idea of doing the entire performance together and then it's done. Mm -hmm. It's hard to go in and out and get my mind wrapped around doing the next poem. And I picked pieces that were all very short. So they were only like, you know, at tops like a three minute poem Mm -hmm. and then there'd be a short break and then I would do it again, you know, do a different poem. Yeah. I'm not sure if I would do it again. It was hard to go into performance mode, I guess is what it was. You know, you got to try, see what happens. Yeah.
0: As soon as you were talking about it, I almost could feel how challenging it would be. But then I was also thinking, (sighs) Maybe there's a level of that too, though, that's so true to women's experiences, like switching roles in their own lives. And then also, I think like for women of color, women of different cultures, like it could be about code switching between different spaces and identities and, uh, which is exhausting. It's like, it's exhausting in your performance of it. And I think it's exhausting for a lot of people in real life.
1: Yeah. It's cool to play on that. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, I can see the relationship there that it would kind of reflect that. Wow. I had thought of that.
0: Cool. Well, I, yeah, that's there's at least something I was hearing in your description or kind of feeling in it maybe. I'm sure if I thought of it, then somebody there probably felt it too.
1: Yeah. What was also interesting is the gallery was, you know, quiet and people were talking quietly. And then all of a sudden there I was in a costume and I would... Be doing this poem really rather loudly and it was really kind of these disruptions mm-hmm. you know during this art reception and I think for people that were probably attending it it was probably like oh what's going on now I mean it was just like these weird kind of bursts and hopefully they weren't too antagonized by it but I could see where it might cause you know some anxiety to have the entire environment kind of shift and Mm -hmm. change yeah I think that's like a really expansive performance
0: and space and I'm sure people have lots of different experiences of it which is the sign of a great performance so (laughs) okay I feel like we've gotten to most of my questions is there anything that you can think of that you wanted to share about your practice or about maybe like what feminism or feminist art means
1: to you more specifically, I'd like to add or say something about the hair and how it relates to identity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I talked about the dichotomy of it and I talked about dyeing it and such like that. I also think it has this kind of broad relationship to our identity, it relates to sexuality, to your age, your race. Your social class, your health, you know, in some cases when people are ill, their hair falls out. Mm -hmm. Power, religion, there's Samson and Delilah's story, there's Mary Magdalene cleaning the feet of Christ with her hair. Another reason I like it is that it relates to identity, it relates, and it has metaphors or symbolism to it for strength or humility. I also think it relates to feminism in terms of it's a part of body image that we place a lot of emphasis on. You think about all the hair products that are advertised towards women and the products we feel compelled to buy to make our hair look good. All of the attention and time that we spend on our hair brushing it combing it shampooing it conditioning it going to the hairdressers you know Mm -hmm. but you had asked me about being a feminist artist I guess as I work I work within a series so usually there's some sort of socio-political issue that is pressing on my mind and then it transforms into a series of artworks that I start working on. All those themes relate back to gender, to feminism, to how we navigate the world around us, how women navigate that world. I don't know that I've ever thought about doing artwork about something else. I mean, to me, these are issues that are so personal and close to me that it doesn't occur to me to do something that doesn't relate to me. Mm -hmm.
0: Have you always conceived of your art as explicitly feminist or
1: was there ever like a shift where you did or didn't call it feminist art? When I was an undergrad, I don't think I thought about the word feminist or feminism. Mm -hmm. And when I was in beginning painting or beginning drawing, Say, beginning painting, I was doing these paintings that were big close ups of women's faces, mostly mine or friends of mine that would pose for me. And all of the faces were these kind of melodramatic expressions, kind of expressions that you would see, like on the faces of the teenage girls and those pretty and pink and kind of movies like that. Mm-hmm. I was really influenced a lot by the photographer, Cindy Sherman. Mm. And as I was working on them, we'd have critiques, and I'd put my work up for the critique. And my instructor would always talk about my reflecting the feminine or something to that effect is what he was saying. And I heard him, and I don't think I really understood why. He th- I mean, obviously, it was a woman. But other than that, I didn't understand why he thought They were so feminine. They were these huge paintings. You know, they were like six foot by six foot. Mm -hmm. I just didn't think about feminism and that I was a feminist, probably until I got to um, graduate school.
0: Mm -hmm. I think I asked primarily because I'm always intrigued talking to activists or artists. Mm -hmm. Like there's the question of like, if they identify as a feminist themselves, if they would explicitly call the work they're doing, whether it be organizing or artistic feminist activism, because I talk to a lot of people who, who do like really great work that centers gender and don't always call it feminist. So I'm just always kind of interested in teasing out how people make those choices. And it sounds like yours is kind of an evolution, but the work has always been true to your stories and your life. And over time, the word feminist really came to connect with it for you.
1: Yeah, I would definitely call myself a feminist. I do make feminist art. It's definitely art focused on social issues mm-hmm. that impact women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say it's more of an evolution in thinking about the issues. And, you know, it's almost as if from undergrad to graduate school, I went from like not knowing very many women artists and who they were. And as I gained more knowledge and became more aware of various women artists from the past, like from the 70s and the 80s, that that knowledge and understanding of how women portrayed their own lives or try to convey their own feelings was something that was, to me, almost like, I have to do this. This is what I have to portray. To me, it's extremely important to highlight and bring attention to these various issues that impact women. Mm. I don't think I could do paintings of blue bonnets because blue bonnets wouldn't mean anything other than a reference to Texas, which is where I'm originally from. But other than that, they wouldn't really mean anything to me. So, yeah, it always has to be something about an issue. It has to be something that I feel very strongly about. When I was getting my divorce back in 2004 or so, I started doing a series and I called it Good Wife, Bad Wife. And I was reading about George O'Keefe and Stieglitz. And then I also read about other husbands and wives who were artists and Edward Hopper and Joe Hopper. And I thought about how difficult it is to be a woman, to be successful in these roles that apparently go hand in hand with being a woman. You're obviously going to be a wife and a mother. You know, there's some sort of like that's mapped out for you, you know, the day you're born or something. And I just thought it was so difficult to juggle all these roles and be an artist and work and create artwork and work a job and try to be a good wife or a good mother. And then if you're not, it seemed as if you were disproportionately punished and made to feel bad because of your failure to live up to these roles. And these pieces that I did they each have a patch with their name on it. So one is Lee Krasner and she has a patch that says Lee, but the patches are references to, in the Boy Scouts, they get patches when they accomplish something, like they achieve something. And I thought that these women needed to be given a patch, like a merit badge of achievement because they did accomplish something. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes... To the detriment of their own career, in the case of Lee Krasner, Mm. she spent so much time on Jackson Pollock's career that it wasn't until after he had passed away that she refocused her energies on her own artwork and her own career as an artist. So she was a good wife. Mm. (laughs) This is before the TV show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) There's also a book I read. Marilyn Yalom wrote a book about the history of the wife which mm-hmm. was really interesting too. I'll have to look that up and link to it
0: in the show notes.
1: Yeah. Almost for every series I do, I always do a lot of reading and thinking about the topic. Mm-hmm. So when I did the series on anger as a tool for change, I read Rebecca Tracer's book, mm-hmm. Good and Mad. Mm-hmm. And what was the other book? Shamala, Shamali, uh, oh, Saraya Shamali. Yeah, rage becomes her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is more of a psychological look, and Tracers is more of a historical look mm-hmm. at anger. But both of them were just great in terms of just giving me this kind of background in the back of my mind for for the artwork that I wanted to make.
0: Yeah, I love those books so. For anyone listening, I will link to them in the show notes. And if you have not heard of or read them, I also highly, highly suggest them. I feel like we could talk forever. Thank you so much for sharing so thoughtfully about your practice. It's just so obvious and how you speak about it that you have really honed your craft. And I really
1: appreciate you sharing that with me and everyone listening. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be part of the podcast.
0: 50
1: is status 50 50 feminist day. 50 feminist day. 50. Oh. 50
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50 podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. Special thanks to Danielle Signs and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, Wild Ones, we'll see you on the road.